Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Recent technical examinations have revealed that a bronze bust of Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in the National Gallery of Art, formerly attributed to imperial sculptor Leone Leone, Milanese, circa 1509 to 1590, was in fact most likely cast in an unidentified bell or cannon foundry. In this lecture, held on April 25, 2016, as part of the Works in Progress series at the gallery, Wendy Seppinen argues that, although we do not know who made the portrait, it nevertheless exemplifies the long-standing practice among Habsburg rulers to rely on foundries throughout their territories to satisfy their diverse needs for instruments of war and dynastic portraiture, thereby reinforcing the status of bronze as the ideal imperial material. To start, I have just a few notes, first of context and then of thanks. My interest in the gallery's strange yet wonderful bust of Charles V stems from my dissertation work, as Faya mentioned, on the meanings of, material, of the materials used by Leone and Pompeo Leone and their collaborators for their Habsburg patrons. And the fellowship here has very much expanded the way I've been going about my research. So for the opportunity and the support since I started, I thank Faya, Maddie, and Ali and Sarah from Academic Programs, and my supervisor, Allison Lux, for her guidance, enthusiasm, and curiosity. My office mates, Jamie and John, for their patience and willingness to talk through this topic. I know you guys have suffered more than most. And the rest of Sculpture and Decorative Arts Department CD, Eleonora, Emily, and Deborah, for their unceasing help. The Outstanding Objects Conservation Lab, and Dylan Smith in particular, um, who has been a, an enormously generous collaborator, and um, he deserves a lot of the credit for pretty much all of the technical um, research that's been done on the bust, um, which informs pretty much every layer of my research here. So thank you, Dylan. And thanks to you all, not just for coming, but for letting me gush. It's such a rare opportunity, so I had to take it. My plan for today's talk is to take an approach that starts with the particulars of the bust and then zooms out. I'll situate it within, within the imperial bust type that it shares, explore the unconventional bronze casting that was used as it was cast more like a bell or cannon than a traditional portrait bust, and then I'll consider the broader socio-political implications of its uniqueness. By simultaneously adhering to a pre-existing imperial portrait bust type, and deviating from, method, from the casting methods used in other extant examples, I argue that the gallery's Charles V exemplifies a long-standing practice amongst Habsburg rulers to rely on foundries throughout their territories to satisfy their diverse needs for instruments of war and dynastic portraiture, thereby reinforcing the status of bronze as the ideal imperial material. The in-the-round half-length portrait bust represents Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, on a square base that was cast integrally with the figure. The inscription identifies him as Charles V, Honorable General Forever, highlighting not his imperial status with the use of the word Caesar, as it appears in other portraits of him, but rather the military label Imperator. The emphasis registers formally as well, as the artist depicted him wearing the armor the emperor wore at his victory at the Battle of Muehlberg in 1547. The bust serves as a double portrait then of a recognizable sitter and identifiable armor with the bust termination point preserving the entire collar, the breastplate and backplate, as well as the pauldrons. 
Vegetal and floral embellishments and masks decorate the base and, and armor, deviating from the Christological iconography of the armor that it otherwise quotes. The earliest recorded date and location for the gallery's bust is 1874 in Vienna's Imperial Hofburg Palace, where it was listed as part of, quote, state property serving the purposes of the court, end quote. In 1920, it went from the Imperial Palace to the Kunsthistorische Museum, also in Vienna, before being sold to the Samuel H. Kress Foundation in 1952. It was then gifted to the National Gallery and entered our collection in that same year. The Kunsthistorische Museum attributed the portrait to Leona Leoni, which the gallery continued. However, in 1995, the bust was de-attributed successfully away from Leoni to Flemish 16th century. Its label as an autograph work by Leone himself had been called into question since the 1970s. And while it is unlikely that a specific named artist will be found for the portrait, its location has been and could be debated. A visit from the Museo del Prado's director in 1971 led him to assess that, quote, the lines are too hard for an Italian work, end quote, believing instead the work to be German. In 1975, Ulrich Middeldorf suggested that it was most likely cast in a commercial foundry, likely in Flanders, due to its, quote, slight clumsiness in the overall proportion. Beyond the stylistic assessments, the 1995 reattribution to an anonymous Flemish caster stemmed from archival documents about Leone's time at Charles's court in Brussels. After the emperor sat for the sculptor in 1549, producing a portrait of the ruler's head, it seems Leone brought, back, brought models back to Milan in 1550. In 1551, Charles sat for Leone again, this time in Augsburg, and Leone sent models back to Milan and, it seems, up to Flanders as well. This is compelling evidence that Leone's model of the emperor's head could have been used in the casting of multiple imperial portraits. However, to truly connect the gallery's bust as a product of a mold, Taken directly from that 1551 model, more archival, scientific, and comparative analysis needs to be undertaken. Art historians, particularly in the past five years or so, have interrogated the relationship between Leone's 16th century correspondence and sculptural practice through a number of extant versions of Leone's imperial portrait type. The initial commission from Charles came in 1549, resulting in this bust here where the bust was to be one of many sculptures of various Habsburg family members, including Charles's son, Philip II, and sister Maria of Hungary. In various formats, including busts, life-size figures, and reliefs, and in both marble and bronze. Leone's portrait bust for Charles V, currently at the Prado, is the product of that request and many, many years of work. Most likely cast in 1553, it and the rest of the commission was shipped in 1556 to Brussels for its patron's approval. It then traveled south to Spain with Leonis San Pompeo, where it remained until it was finished in 1567. Other imperial agents requested similar portraits for their own collections. Antoine Perrineau de Granville, top minister to Charles V, commissioned the strikingly close version now at the Kunsthistorische Museum in the center commissioned in 1551 and shipped to Granville in 1555. And the Duke of Alba, prize general for the emperor's forces, of the emperor's forces, commissioned a series of portraits, here's Charles's version and here's the whole series, from Leone, in which portraits of Charles and the Duke would flank Philip II, now in the royal collection at Windsor Castle. 
Scholars have included the gallery's busts and two others, one in Gosbeek Castle, Belgium, and Goosing Castle outside of Vienna, as other examples in this formal lineage. And just side note, I'm very skeptical that the Belgian example on the screen is A, even by Leone, or B, from the 16th century at all. While Leone did not make our version, his portraits did successfully codify a new format to which our sculpture largely adheres. The bust terminal line coincides with, uh, coincides with the represented breastplate and pauldrons, which with the exception of the Charles V in Windsor Castle, which remains within the formal logic of its own series, directly quotes the emperor's Muehlberg armor. Distinctive for its pointed scallop and floral decoration, as well as the Order of the Golden Fleece, which is buried here in the gilded band, and a central medallion on the cuirass. Made by renowned armorer Desiderius Helmschmidt in Augsburg in 1544, it belongs to a full garniture of armor, including various pieces suitable for light and heavy cavalry, as well as infantry. The victory and the armor were so notable that Charles had Titian travel from Venice to Augsburg after the battle in order to, com to commemorate the event in what might now be the most famous portrait of the emperor. It is possible that Leone designed the bust from the painting as he had traveled to Venice prior to casting the busts, but it is more likely that the sculptor saw the armor firsthand during his 1549 to 1550s stay in the Brussels court. The Muehlberg armor had stayed with the emperor since the battle and traveled south with him upon his retirement and relocation to the monastery in, to, uh, the monastery in Eustace, Spain in 1556. It was added in 1557 to the collection at the Real Armería then in Valladolid and is now at the Royal Palace in Madrid. Leona Leone paid close attention to the original armor, preserving its most identifiable features, the floral motifs, the central medallion, the pointed scallops. There is consistency, though, to how Leone adapted the Muehlberg armor between his Prado and Vienna versions. He erased the floral designs from the pointed scallops. He's added medallions to the pauldrons, seen here and has changed the iconography of the central medallion, among other, other edits. And this remarkably close formal relationship points towards a possible close technical relationship between the two busts, as perhaps they were both made from the same mold via indirect lost wax casting. And here I should pause for a quick explanation of bronze casting techniques, as it will be necessary in order to understand how the gallery's bust departs from Leone's autograph version of the imperial bust type. Leone's likely method, though technical examination is required to confirm, confirm this fully, was indirect lost wax casting, which allows for reproducibility. Don't panic, I'm gonna walk you through this diagram step by step. For indirect casting, you model and carve wax or terracotta until you have what is essentially your final work just in the other material. Here you have, a, um, which is state, step, stage A. You then make molds of your model section by section. This is step B. You then take each mold, pour wax into it, swirl it around, and dump it out, steps C, D, and E, leaving you with hollow wax pieces of your figures. Then step F, you reassemble the sections before step G when you add sprues, also in wax, that will become channels from which the wax will melt out and into which the bronze will flow. You then encase the figure and sprues in what is called an investment, step H, melt the wax out, step I, 
and pour in the bronze, step J. You then allow the bronze to cool before cleaning and finishing the sculpture. It's as easy as that. It's not easy at all. The scholarly assertion has been that the resemblance between the Prado and Vienna busts in particular, and you can see how uh, strikingly similar they are, especially from the back, is the result of a shared model. After molds were taken and the sections were made and assembled, distinctions between the two could have been made at stage F. As they were still in their wax phase, details could be changed, particularly those on the armor, and each bust could be specified for the individual patron whilst maintaining their formal and therefore political association with one another. What of the gallery's bust then? Technical examinations undertaken by Dylan Smith revealed that it was not indirectly cast in the manner associated with Leone Leone's workshop. Rather, it bears traces of having been cast like a bell or cannon. Firstly, it uses significantly more bronze than Leone's, more material economical examples, which are hollowed out and thin-walled. You can see where this, in, in the areas that appear to be the deep, deepest relief, they've actually been carved out from the inside, ensuring that the bronze stays quite thin throughout. Not only is our example finished in the round, its walls are unusually thick for a portrait bust. And here we see an image of it tipped towards the back, looking up into the head cavity. And the interior is smooth, with no indication that the maker attempted to thin out the walls. Then the interior does show that the core was wrapped with iron wires, evidence of which you can see here in these spiraling lines, uh, indicating that the core was two identical halves held together, a technique also used in bell making, where the shapes are rounded and uniform. On top of this generalized mirrored core, front to back, the maker applied layers, of, uh, applied layers upon layers of wax. And here in the x-ray, you can see evidence not only of its symmetry, where the front and back are perfectly mirrored, um, you can also see the amount of wax that was used. The white areas indicate opacity, where it's the thickest amount of bronze, which means it was the thickest amount of wax in the model stage. And it then indicates that the mask decorations, uh, the sash, the beard, the hair was all applied as solid wax onto that figure. Furthermore, the consistency and repetition of the decorative motifs on the base in particular, also points to bell and cannon ma making techniques where ornamental patterns and lettering would be rolled out in wax, as you see here, and applied as a secondary later, layer to the form, as you see here, before being refined with wooden tools. The facture of the gallery's Charles V, a blend of an imperial portrait type and bell slash cannon production, might seem like an oddity, which in some ways it is, it nevertheless has implications for our understanding of, firstly, the relationship between 16th century bronze objects, secondly, Habsburg patronage practices, and lastly, the imperial value of bronze casting. Bronze, as an alloy, is comprised mostly of copper and tin. It was quite expensive, both for the raw materials needed, as well as the enormous effort and labor required to cast it. Foundries, workshops specializing in the casting of metals, were highly experienced in technical sites, outfitted with specific amenities, tools, and experienced craftspeople. 
our more modern day preoccupation with the strict divisions between sculptures and decorative arts betrays how interrelated bronze objects were considered to be in their, con in, in their contemporary settings, both in terms of where they were made and who was making them. Whether figural sculptures, bells, mortars, cannons, andirons, metals, or other utilitarian objects, foundries were uniquely equipped to cast bronze, and many now canonical sculptors turned to the casters of more quotidian items to produce their sculptures, making the gallery's Charles V not unique in this respect, but rather exemplary of the fluidity between early modern bronzes. The blending and blurring of types of bronze objects starts with the inherent recyclability of the alloy. Finished works could be melted down, the metal's impurities could be skimmed off, and you would have the materials required to cast something new. The reuse of bronze objects as spolia dates back to antiquity, and anecdotes about the casting and recasting of bronzes abound. In a particularly complex 16th century example, Flemish sculptor Jacques Jongelink used a captured cannon to make a portrait of the Duke of Alba, the same Duke who commissioned the series of portrait busts mentioned earlier. After his victory over Protestant forces, the Duke, who was governor of the Low Countries at the time, commissioned a life-size bronze monument to, him, to himself, which was erected in the heart of Antwerp's citadel. And here we see an interpretation of that sculpture in the print on the right. Coupled with his violent and brutal suppression of the Dutch revolt and his exorbitant taxation of Flemish and Spanish residents alike, he was quickly recalled to Spain. Memories of the Duke and associations with the sculpture were so potent and negative, however, that the subsequent governor immediately took down the sculpture and had it strangely not melted, but buried. It wasn't, a few, it wasn't until a few years later that the bronze body was exhumed and then melted down for other unstated purposes. There are several instances in which major Renaissance commissions and monuments were cast not by master sculptors as we would think of them today, but in foundries that specialize in the technical challenge of casting large-scale works. Currently in the Frick collection, the bronze angel at left was entrusted to Jean Barbet, French royal cannon founder in 1475. Its formal association with cannons, its long, hollow cylindrical form, and you can imagine if it were tipped on its side, it would look very reminiscent of a cannon, is obvious. And technical research undertaken at the Frick has confirmed its facture also resembles those practiced in, those practiced in artillery foundries. Roughly one decade later, and in Italy, Andrea del Verrocchio, an exceptional sculptor and founder, died before he could cast and finish the equestrian monument to Bartolomeo Colleone in the Campo Santi Giovanni Paolo in Venice. The contract to complete the work was given to local Venetian bronze founder Alessandro, Alessandro Leopardi, who prominently signed the work on the strap of the underside of the horse. Elsewhere on the peninsula in Naples, King Ferrante I commissioned a set of bronze doors for the Castel Nuovo, which you see on the right, in, for, in 1475, and he awarded the project to Guglielmo Monaco, canon founder and the most richly compensated member of Ferrante's court. And for this reference, I need to thank the newly minted, numismatic pun intended, Dr. Nicole Riesenberger, currently an intern in the education department. In the 16th century, instances grew of founders being entrusted with increasingly ambitious figural work. In Seville in 1565, local artillery and bell caster Bartolomé Morel was responsible for acquiring the materials, 
casting and finishing the colossal weather vane known as the Giraldillo. Positioned on top of Seville's cathedral and fully functional, the sculpture is engineered to turn with the changing Mediterranean breezes. Elsewhere in Habsburg territories at the time, Charles V's younger brother Ferdinand was overseeing work on an extensive tomb monument to Maximilian I, who was their, their grandfather and Charles's immediate prede predecessor as Holy Roman Emperor, and from whom Charles inherited a number of patronage practices and visual programs. Initiated by Maximilian I in 1508, this decades-long project was conceived originally as a sculpture group of 40 life-size bronze sculptures of the emperor's ancestors and relatives, 34 classical Roman imperial busts, also in bronze, and 100 statuettes of family saints. The commission was never completed to Maximilian's specifications, and only 24 of the 40 life-size bronze portraits of his Habsburg predecessors now attend his monument. You can actually see they're slightly larger than life-size if you just compare this human body to the bronze bodies. When it came time to begin work, the emperor turned to painter Georg Cecil Schreiber, he may have been German by that name, uh, to he was definitely German by that name, um, uh, to supervise the bronze casting at Innsbruck. Cecil Schreiber reached out to local artillery founder Peter Loeffler to begin casting the first figure shown here at the right, and it was Loeffler and his workshop in Innsbruck that cast the only three figures to be made during the emperor's lifetime. Maximilian had a long-standing practice to support the armor and artillery specialists throughout his empire, including Nuremberg, Augsburg, and Innsbruck, and other carefully coordinated propaganda projects visually asserted his, ex his expertise and knowledge in these metallurgical industries. Starting with the book Der, Der Weisskönig, or The White King, which was a biography of the emperor parading as a chivalric novel, Maximilian was him ha has himself represented as a young king, finely robed, visiting a gunnery on the left and an armor forge on the right, animatedly discussing the laborer's actions. Albrecht Dürer's The Triumphal Arch of Maximilian I, printed originally in 1515, depicts the emperor's intricate family tree over the central archway. Here you have Maximilian, his heir, and all of the family tree spiraling down, flanked by 24 prominent scenes from Maximilian's biography, with an overwhelming emphasis on marital unions and martial victories. Embedded amongst these historic events are depictions of the emperor, amongst field artillery and as a master of war and jousts, in which he stands gallantly armored in a field riddled with weaponry, cannon, and armor, with the imperial orb and scepter replaced here by a cannonball and sword. After Maximilian's death and Charles's ascent as Holy Roman Emperor in 1519, the new ruler continued his predecessor's practice to use his patronage as a tool to mobilize forges and foundries throughout Europe, as, as exemplified in the gallery's portrait bust. Because the Habsburg's European territories were so widespread and the threat of rebellions was ever present, it was a military necessity to have competent, well-equipped foundries throughout their holdings at the ready to provide artillery, guns, and cannons that were too heavy to transport over long distances. At the economic level, it was also in the Habsburgs' best interest to support workshops that were purchasing the raw metal ores necessary to make the alloys for a range of bronze objects. 
The primary copper mines used during the 16th century were in the Erzgebirge Mountains, indicated here, and were owned by the wealthy and powerful Fugger family, who were bankers and merchants based in Augsburg. Maximilian gave Patriarch Jakob Fugger the exclusive rights to mine from those mountains in exchange for loaning money to his imperial cause, thereby placing the Fuggers at the center of bronze production throughout the continent. This understanding between ruler and bankers continued to the subsequent generation of Fugger and Habsburg families. By pumping money into Europe's metallurgical industries, Charles V and Maximilian before him strengthened their economic, political, and social bonds to the Fuggers while maintaining their military strength on all possible fronts. Charles V's desire to foreground his military might and privileged access to martial industries was strong enough that Leona Leone materialized the association between the emperor's body and armor in perhaps his best known work, the Charles V and Fuhrer. Dressed in all antica armor, standing over a captured enemy sitting atop a pile of arms, the sculpture's most notable feature is its armor, as it is removable. By drawing such attention to the armor, or lack of armor, Leone once again highlights the importance of Charles's military identity, as we saw earlier with his bust types that maintain the breastplate intact and, um, and in a material rife with militaristic potential. As embodied by the gallery's bronze bust, there were numerous possible advantages that bronze as a diverse material offered to patrons, artists, and collectors alike. At one level, it was beneficial for individual workshops to demonstrate their casting dexterity. In times of peace, they could make and repair bells, mortars, and andirons for local churches and homes while producing figural works like the Charles V for patrons wishing to communicate their loyalty to the ruling house. In times of war, they could easily pivot, offering instead the necessary artillery and ammunition for battle. The capacity for workshops beyond those of the official imperial sculptors to produce portrait busts of the Habsburgs also allowed for a wider social range, an almost second tier, of collectors and supporters to afford to display their likenesses. Um, to be clear, it was still only the very wealthy who could have commissioned an object like the gallery's bust, but the fact that it was done in a commercial or royal foundry and not by the Leone in Milan also indicates that such versions were circulating much more widely than previously realized. Finally, and to zoom back into the gallery's bust one final time, a bronze portrait that was possibly made in a workshop that also made instruments of war possessed a unique ability to coalesce in one object and one material, the sitter's access to mineralogical, martial, and artistic industries simultaneously. The gallery's Charles V, though it may look awkward or clumsy to some, is nevertheless a valuable lens onto imperial visual strategies, economic networks, and the dynamic possibilities inherent to bronze in the 16th century. So I encourage you all to go upstairs and say hello. So I think question time? Hi. Hi. Uh, when you said it, was, it might look to some awkward and clumsy, is that the is the reason being because of the quality of the who made it, or just the nature of the technique of using the uh, uh, that was used in the foundry? Or more broadly, what are the advantages and disadvantages of lost wax versus uh, making these the way candles and mortars are built and mortars? Um, I think it's probably a. Con did everyone hear the question? 
Okay. Um, I think it's a combination of a few of those things. The fact that it was made with a perfectly mirrored core, where the, sh the exact shape in the front is the exact shape in the back, um, does formally then lead to a visual effect of kind of a stilted, very static, inert body. Um, whereas if you had molded or modeled something um, independent, you could give it a greater swing of the arm, you could give it um, kind of more dynamic axes to the body. Um, the, the comments about it being clumsy and awkward then I think are a, a kind of judgment-laden reading on those visual effects. Um, he looks very erect and kind of upright to me. Um, there's a lot of cold work, meaning a lot of the finished details were done when the bronze was cold with chisels and iron tools as opposed to modeled and then picked up in the wax and then the, the subsequent casting uh, steps. Um, so I think it's a bit of both. I think he's great. I don't think he looks clumsy or awkward. So I, I just inherently kind of push back against that a little bit. I mean, could a fabric made work be of the artistic quality of something that might um, it, uh, okay, so the question of quality is one I'm going to diplomatically sidestep. Um, I think pro it, it, the goal of this, I think if the goal of this object were to perfectly replicate a Leone, they could have done it, but they didn't. And I think that that difference, there's meaning in that difference, whether it's where it was made, how it was made, who it was made for, the where it was going to be displayed. I think there are a lot of things that could account for that beyond they weren't as good. Maybe they weren't as good, but I think there are, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt because we weren't there on the ground. Hi, Kate. Hi, Wendy. I'm intrigued by that angel that you said. Yeah. 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 Um, so was the purpose to communicate something by manufacturing the angel in this way? Or was it just a, it was just a question of what the, the tools were that they had? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it could be, you know, it could be purposeful that they wanted it to look like the prime object that that foundry was responsible for producing, kind of, you know, staying on brand. Um, but we don't know. It's, it is signed, so you know exactly who made it. You know, we know, based on archival documentation, that he was working for the King of France at the time as his primary canon maker. Um, but I don't know if, if you can say this was, it, it, it was made to look like, it's, it's kind of a chicken or an egg question where was it made to look like a cannon so that it could look like a cannon or does it look like a cannon because it was made by a cannon maker? Like it's really, it's really difficult to parse out exactly which one it is, but both are possible. We do, I mean, uh, uh, Denise Allen and Julia Day, who uh, are the curator and uh, conservator who worked on this, published a really great article that I'm, I'd be happy to pass on to you if you're interested in reading it. It's really interesting. Um, but I would say they, they are the holders of whatever answers are available to us at the moment. Thanks. And I should say, Kate helped me with XRF analysis of the only other 16th century Flemish anonymous metal object we have. So thank you, Kate.
Hi, Dodge. Interested in the pronouns, and you may have said, but how did the work come into the collection of Costa Strutters? So from there to us or from the Hofburg Palace to them? Yes. Okay. Um, we, we don't know. We've been trying to ask. Um, there in the object file, Allison Lux, um, illustrious as she is, uh, contacted Claudia, I can't, re I can't remember her last name, um, a curator at the Kunstsesorische, and basically asked, is there anything in your files that indicate when it came into the, the Hofburg Palace, at what stage, where did, you, where did it come from, when did you have it? And there seems to be no further documentation beyond um, in 1874. There's some reference to it being, I have it listed here, um, basically just, uh, here it is, a state property serving the purposes of the court. So 1874, that's as far back as we're able to go. Um, it's, it's a bit of a mystery. Hi, Peter. Hi. Uh, really fascinating what you're working on here. I was wondering about the armor. Um, it has a kind of life of its own, it seems. Yeah. Um, that it was so famous. Uh, and then oh, the, yeah. it tour around. And, uh, so my questions for you are about how people knew exactly what it looked like. Was it based on rubbings? Was it based on drawings? Mm -hmm. Was it based on the actual um, armor being available to the sculptors or the um, it, I, I think it's because the actual armor was available to them. So, so Titian had to make a special trip up to Augsburg just to see the armor before he paint, went back to Venice to paint this. Um, the armor stayed with the king in the court at Brussels the entire time he was there. So between uh, 1547, when the battle was fought, to 1556, when he moved down to Spain. It was with him in Brussels. So the Leone probably saw it there. I'm, I, that's my estimation. It then traveled back down to Spain with him and has been there basically ever since, besides detours to DC and the like. Um, so the question, it, it was, there's also an illuminated manuscript, a, a sort of drawn manuscript of the holding, when the Real Armeria sets up in 1557, um, the entire garniture, not just these, but the entire set was illustrated. Um, I think it was enormously famous uh, in, in multiple media. I don't think there's any specific one way. The question, the implications for our bust, how did a potential canon or bell maker know of this armor, was probably because they had access or drawings or something either of the actual armor or of the Leone kind of imperial bust type. Because there are many ways in which this is actually more loyal to the armor than it is to the to Leone's interpretation of it. So in the pointed scallops, there's the preservation of the floral decoration inside those scallops, whereas Leone erases those. Um, so I'm not sure. It could be, and, and if this was in fact made by a Flemish caster, as opposed to maybe a German one, as I'm, secretly, not so secretly, inclined to think maybe it was more German or Austrian than Flemish. If it was Flemish, though, one of the big things that argument has going for it is its resemblance to the armor, which was in Brussels at the time. Yeah? So I guess tied to that, I mean, like, one thing that sort of impressed or intrigued me about that was the only is that it is in the round, and so we can see the back of the armor. Is that, so I guess, I guess the two questions is, is that 
was that more a product of the, was that like more a product of the, just the way it was cast, or is it something that the person who funded or would request it? And the second part is like, is the, like a lot of you shown, what you've shown is like the front of the armor. Is the back accurate to what the back actually looks like? And does that imply that they would have had to see it in person, or were there photos that just taken up the back of the armor? Uh, here. Um, that's a really good question. And I have not seen the back of the Muehlberg armor myself. Um, the way it's positioned in the Real Armeria, you only see the front it's, and you can't get to the back because they're for some reason very picky about people climbing over stanchions. Um, so I haven't seen it. It's also very difficult to find reproductions of the back plate. They usually just focus on the breastplate, which is much more ornate. Um, so I can't say how exactly kind of scallop for scallop it is, uh, how faithful it is. Um, I was actually just speaking with Dylan Smith after my, the first go round of this talk. And he was, he agreed that the issue of the fact that this is fully in the round finished at the back is one of the biggest things we need to sort of set our minds to now. Um, because is that in order to preserve, is that again, like, like you were asking, is it a product of the way it was made, where you have the front and the back mirrored and in need of, com of completion all the way around? Or is it, um, did someone want it to be a much more loyal three-dimensional representation of the armor? And we don't know. But we're all thinking the same things. Good question. Okay, I think we're good to go. Great. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 